Um, I'm working my way back to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to do an introduction today. But it is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And then there's another issue that I want to tackle as well. So we're going to go to, the, to a banquet of truth today. And so uh, open your mouth and get ready to receive uh, a gush of truth as we look at the Word of God today. But let's pray before we get going. Father, thank you for this morning to gather together as your children, redeemed from our sins, purchased from the debt and death that was due. Our tongues are released. Joy now springs forth as we sing truth this morning and as we hear your word taught because you have converted us. You have changed us. What a wonderful thing, Lord, as we think about our great salvation. Lord, thank you for music. Music is a, a great tool that mankind has loved for, for all of its known existence, Lord. But to the believer, to the one who walks after the Lord Jesus Christ, it allows us to express such joy, such truth. And it lets us do it in unity as each and every member of the body of Christ voices these truths together, Lord. What a choir, what a proclamation, Lord. So, Lord, thank you for the ministry of music. Thank you for Troy and his team that works so diligent so we can sing together and hear one another, Lord. Bless him and Shelby, Lord. Thank you for their ministry. Lord, thank you for so many other ministries that are unseen around here. Those who clean and care for little ones and, and do so many ministries, Lord. Bless them. Now, Father, as we look to your word, to the truth of your scriptures, Lord, challenge us. Cause us to know you better now than even when we walked in this building this morning. May we grow in your grace and knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things I want to cover today, sanctity of life, biblical sexuality, and an introduction to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, so we can get back into that text next week. So by way of introduction, if you have your notes, you can write this portion in the introduction. Turn to that great passage that Pastor Paul just read to us, uh, Psalms 139, 13 through 16. This is a passage that we know well, but even as I studied it this week and, and have studied taught it many times, have read it many times, have it memorized. The richness of the truth of Psalms 139 refreshed my soul again. And I trust it will as we look at this again. Psalms 139 is written by King David. He says in verse 13, you have formed my inward parts, you have woven me in my mother's womb. Sanctity of life is defended by Christ's church. No one else is going to do it. You understand that? No one else is going to do it biblically. No one else is going to do it as God intended it to be. Sanctity of life belongs, the mission belongs to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, there are many others who engage in the care of the unborn, but it is truly the ministry of the church. David here in verse 13 knows that God is all-powerful and that his power is proven in this skillful formation of his own self in the womb of his mother. This is a passage that promotes the sovereignty of God in unseen things. Isn't it interesting? David's own testimony to the power of God is 
is seen in the formation of his most inner parts. David says, you formed the things man can't see. You formed vital organs. You formed hearts and lungs and kidneys and liver. Just the other day, our children in Washington are pregnant with, their, with our third grandson. And we got to live stream the ultrasound from Florida while they were in Washington. And we seen the heart of our third grandson beat as God forms it. What a blessing. He forms a nervous system, a vascular system. He forms a personality and a moral sense of responsibility that's put on the heart of the unborn even. According to Romans chapter 2, he forms all this. And see, David sees the authority and power of God to weave this whole person together like a skillful artisan that's weaving the colors of a tapestry together. It's the power of God. It's all created and accomplished by this hand of God in the mother's womb. And David acknowledges nine months before his physical birth, God was there doing that. Life begins at conception. Because our God is holy. Look at verse 14. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Well, the result of this truth is David can only praise God. Praise God for this display of divine omnipotence. And think about this. There are no ultrasounds. There's no surgeries in the womb of a woman going on like we have today. In their limited understanding of, of the design of the body, God has given David and these men who love God, these women who love God, an, an understanding that God was doing all this within the womb. And yet today, we see 3D images of children. And yet they can be murdered. See, David understood that God personally designed him. I like that. God personally designed you. He knew it. You see, it provoked him to say, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I believe God's creative power in the womb, David says. And he's struck with awe and anage astonishment. See, David's not merely captured with just the academic greatness of God. He's now captured by truth. Truth grips his soul that God was there in the beginning of his conception, weaving together in a beautiful way his body and giving him a soul. See, the creator God fashions mankind he fashions from the physical to the spiritual. David says, my soul knows it well. He fashions your soul. He makes you the spiritual person you are. One that can believe and know God. One that would fall under judgment and the rejection of God. He fashions the soul of man. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. See, David knew that his physical frame, even in the womb, was in full view of the divine creator. Nothing was hidden. And he knows 
that while forming him in the womb, he could not be concealed from the Creator's eyes. Consumed from man, uh, uh, concealed from man's eyes, yes, but not concealed from the eyes of God. That must strike us. He sees every child. He knows every baby in the womb. He knows their time of conception. This marks us to remember that abortion is evil. It's pagan and godless. And God highly, highly protects the unborn. As he watches and fashions like a master weaver. You just can't help but see this. Threading colors and weaving veins and arteries and muscles and tendons and skeletons together. He continues to make man an image bearer of himself. Look at verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Well, in David's high view of God, he acknowledges that God's sovereignty, he has the right in his sovereignty to know every soul before the foundations of the world. See, David knew it was more than, than just flesh and blood. He knew it was more than just tissue. See, David believed that God had sovereignly ordained his life. Yes, his flesh and blood. Yes, his souls. And he ordained those days before there were one. That's absolute control, isn't it? That's absolute sovereignty. See, and I think this helps us grasp the deep love of life that God has for humanity. That's why the church protects life. The young, the old, the unborn. We fight for life because life belongs to God. He's the giver of it. Man has no right to take it. Not only from the beginning of life is life precious, but even God protects and determines the length of it. That's good news for us in a COVID fear-driven world, right? It's good news. God ordains our days. None of us are dropping over till he says it's going to happen. God's in control of that. David elsewhere wrote in Psalms 31, 15, I think it's a very messianic psalm. He says, my times, my times are in your hand. My time is in your hand. Jesus Christ picks us up and he often says, it's not my time yet, it's not my time. I think this speaks of the, even the divine seed of Jesus Christ. Think about that. The divine seed is spoken of in the garden after the fall of man. He tells them there's a seed coming from a woman. And God protected that seed all the way down through the generations, all the way to the womb of Mary. And there was no one going to destroy that seed in the, woman, in the womb of Mary. See, we're taught even how God protects his own son. that He fulfills his promises. Look at 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts to me. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. <coughs> well, these divine truths were precious to David. You can tell as he writes. And they should be to us. 
And when we ponder the vastness of God's thoughts and plans for human life and for you individually, truly it's beyond comprehension. We were talking as a family the other day of how God brought us to Florida and then the resulting effects on our children and grandchildren and different things that have happened in our life because God was orchestrating everything. And though we have a tendency to screw it up sometimes, right, be sinful and not enjoy the plan of God, God is nevertheless in control, working all the way through our circumstances in our life. And we must give him credit for that. And like David... We should think that God, we should understand that God thinks about our existence, planned our design. In fact, if you were to try to think through just even that simple process that Gina and I were talking through with the kids, there are so many thoughts that come into them, you can't number them as you start to think about the kindness of God thinking about us. David uses sand. I've been out in the middle of the desert in Nevada and there's a pile of sand in Nevada that'll blow your mind. <laughs> and there's beaches around the world full of sand. And David says, this is, this is beyond that. There's more thoughts than every grain of sand that covers this earth. And when we're stirred to deep thoughts of our most high God, such truth should remain in us personally about our personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ, our Lord, how God has brought us to himself through Christ. And it all started before the foundations of the world. He knew us. We would not escape his, his irresistible love. And he gathered us. And so, Riverbend, we need to be completely dedicated to the sanctity of life. That shows up in how we care for the children down the hall. It shows up how we care for moms and ministries to young moms. It shows up in how we care for young men and disciple them and train them to be dads that biblically teach them to love God and love their spouse and their children. See, this shows up in many areas besides maybe holding a protest sign. We show we love the sanctity of life, the way we disciple one another and love the things of God. And so from our pulpit to the pew... That's in-house right here. From the pulpit to the pew, we believe in the sanctity of life. From our neighborhood to Washington, that's outside this door, we still stand for the sanctity of life. Don't shy away when it comes up with your neighbor. Lovingly read them this passage. Say, so can I read you something the Bible says that God says about life? Let God's word jump on them. Let God's word teach them where life begins. We believe in the sanctity of life throughout our ministries. We support Alpha and Grace House and Warm in the care of our elderly. These are ministries that say sanctity of life is important to Riverbend Church because it's important to God. We love adoption. We love adoption. It speaks of our own salvation, doesn't it? And so we encourage moms and dads to pursue that as God lays that on their heart. Pursue adoption and we, we honor that and, and we, we exalt those things because 
a life has been often saved through adoption. And brothers and sisters, we are unashamed of our God and his love for life. We are unashamed of God and his love for life. We will not back down. These are hills we die on, brothers and sisters, for the love of the sanctity of life. Let me pray for our church in this area. Father in heaven, we have taken a moment to remind ourselves of truths that we hold dearly, Lord. But we hold them dearly, Lord, because you hold them dearly. These are your words, not ours. So God, I pray that you would help River Bend from the pulpit to the pew, from the neighbor to Washington, to the ministries we support, to adoption, to an unashamed stance that God is the giver of life. May you help us stand graciously, humbly, but firmly, Lord, in these areas. In Jesus' name, amen. A second subject I want to tackle today is found in your notes under number one. A biblical response to the world's unbiblical view of human sexuality. A biblical response to the world's unbiblical view of human sexuality. A few weeks ago, John MacArthur sent out an email to many of us. And he challenged the churches to preach on biblical sexuality. Last Sunday on the 16th, over 4,000 churches across North America preached on this subject. I was finishing a series on love without limits, and so I pushed it to this week. I imagine there's many of us doing that. Well, this was in a response to a bill that Canada is passing. It's a bill that seeks to what they call stop conversion therapy. Maybe you've read of the town of West Lafayette, Indiana, is trying to do something even within their own town, and they've called it Conversion Therapy Equality Act. Proponents of the bill say it's written to prevent child abuse, actual physical child abuse and assault on children, but the wording of the bill is clearly targets God's word in his church. The introduction of the bill uses this word myth in it. And it's in reference to a biblical view of heterosexuality and birth gender. The bill goes on to define what they call conversion therapy. Here's the actual words from the bill. As a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Change a person's gender to identify to cisgender. That's a gender at birth. Change a person's gender expression so that, here's their phrase, it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. This bill is going through in Canada. And many people around the world are wanting to see its effect so they can push it through in their societies. The bill makes it abusive to teach in Sunday school, church, Christian school, any counseling situation that biblical human sexuality is abuse. That's the bill's goal. And according to the bill, it's, it's a criminal offense and punishable up to five years in prison. 
Now, a lot can be said about this. We know where society is going. The Bible tells us that men will just grow worse and worse. Evil will continue to take over. We understand that we could, we could yell and scream and jump up and down all we want. But I want to go a little different direction with you today to think through this. A, the world desperately needs Christians who are unashamed of the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Bible. This is how we combat things. Certainly, we call and write letters and, and, and vote and do the things that, that are good to stand on biblical morals. But listen, brothers and sisters, the world is in desperate need of Christians who are unashamed, unashamed of the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible. See, the world has no regard for God's inerrant, authoritative, infallible, all-sufficient truth. They don't regard that. And there is a clear, growing rejection of God's truth, where at one point our nation's constitution had biblical principles designed and weaved through them. And now they write it as an ancient myth. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.16 with me. This is a verse we all know and we stand on. It's throughout our doctrinal statement. But do we believe it in every area? Are you going to believe it when I get into 1 Corinthians 7 and it starts taking on our view of marriage and singleness? And our view of sex within the marriage and how we handle those things and, and divorce and remarriage and what, all those difficult things. Are you going to still believe the sufficiency of Scripture? See, this is why the church has to stand not only in these difficult areas outside of us, but in difficult areas within us. Notice the verse says all Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed. It's a product of God. God exerted energy as he spoke forth the word of God. Profitable for teaching. This is our directive. We, we have no other book. We have no other resource to lean back on to. This is everything we need. And we're unashamed of that. It'll reproof you. Reproof means to expose error. There's a lot of error in the world. But unfortunately, there's a lot of error in Christians as well. See, this is why we have to use the Bible. We have to let the Bible reproof us, reproof me, reproof you. This is what the Bible does. It reproofs us. It helps get us back in line with God. You ever get out of line with God? Word of God brings you back. Don't read your Bible, push it off, blame somebody for what you did. You won't get in line with God. Let it reproof you. Let it correct you. We all need course corrections. We all need to see the error of our ways, the sinfulness of our ways. And it'll train you in righteousness. I love that last phrase. You know why it needs to train us in righteousness? Because we often think unrighteously. Our flesh, when not controlled by the Spirit of God and dictated by the Word of God, it tends to think unrighteously. We think the worst of people. Christians have a terrible habit of gossiping. See, see, we need some training there, right? We need the Word of God to bring us back into line, to teach us how to live righteously. 
See, Scripture comes as one divine, inerrant package. And yes, we understand biblical theology and the Old Testament fulfillment by Jesus Christ, all of it flowing towards them. And so we handle those texts correctly as they point and flow us towards the great new covenant found in Jesus Christ alone. But the divine word of God is an inerrant package. We cannot let loose Christianity pick and choose what they want out of the Bible. Because you create a designer God. And you have no God. And so to reject parts of the scripture is in all reality to reject all of scripture. They either are all inspired and all infallible or they're not. So our flesh doesn't like that. I'm reminded as I'm preparing this study for 1 Corinthians 7, it's, it's not an easy passage. It's difficult. It's going to challenge. It's going to push us on marriage and our view of it. Am I going to believe that? Am I going to teach all of it? Is the congregation going to believe all of it? Or will they let experience dictate what they believe? See, that's what the problem with Christianity is. It's all built around experience versus truth. And so if you've had this experience, then, then, then that outweighs the word of God in so many people's mind. Do you believe in the unadulterated authority and infallible all-sufficient scripture to judge and guide and direct our souls and our church. See, there's a strong arming pressure coming to the church. A strong arming pressure to come to the church on our view from everything from life in the womb to what marriage and love really is about. It's coming, and it's coming hard. Our neighbors, our bordering neighbors are ready to put pastors in prison and already have. This is not in a third world country. This is across our northern border. It's coming. And listen, the world desperately needs a group of true Christians say we are ashamed of the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible and we will stand on this. And we are God's ambassadors. And we'll teach the truth in love because we have nothing else to give. You can't give your own opinion if it's not based in the scriptures. And who else will give it? Who else is going to give the truth of God's word when it pertains to love, to marriage, to gender, to life, to death, to all of those things that are coming at us? Oh, it's us. It's us who have the word of God and believe it in entirety. B, the world desperately needs a living example of a converted people. The world desperately needs living examples of converted people. It's clear the world has joined the forces of Satan to, to rob and ensnare people in unbiblical relationships. It attempts to hide what true love is. And only the Word of God can explain that. The word conversion in this bill is not there by mistake. It's carefully chosen. See, it's a mockery of God's incredible love and His ability to convert dead sinners, godless people, 
those under the power of the Prince of Air to become his very own children. He has the power to convert. And everyone in this room who's a Christian, you have witnessed and testified the converting power of God. He converted you. Not some pastor. (laughs) Not some just as I am song, sung 51 times till somebody got shoved out. You weren't converted that way. And maybe you came down on a song. Maybe you met with a pastor. Maybe you knelt at an altar. Whatever it was, it was God who converted you. This is what God does. See, God loves to convert sinners that have no love for him. He first loved us. See, God loves to do that. See, a Christian knows and believes that God took our sin, all of it, the whole, and he imputed it to his son. In return, he he gave us his very own son's righteousness so that we can, think about this, we can stay in the presence of the Father for all of eternity because we're dressed not in our own righteousness but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In our deadness, Ephesians 2, God breathed new life into us. His spirit regenerates us so that we become new creation. We're new. We've been converted from an old creature to a new creature. He transforms us and converts us from being slaves of sin to sons and daughters of the king. This is conversion. He converts us from hell's captives to citizens of heaven who eagerly wait for the return of our Savior. He grants you eternal peace through the justifying work of Jesus Christ, and you receive hope instead of doom. You receive joy instead of fear. And we now know true love that was hidden from us because of our sin. And so conversion... It's kind of an understatement of what God has done, but it's a very true statement. He's converted us, right? If we don't proclaim that truth, if we don't try to help sinners captured in eternal damning sin, who else is going to help them? Three, or C, the world system has absolutely no ability to stop the conversion of God's elect. <laughs> There's no person, no system, no legislation, no country, no denom- uh, excuse me, demonic being they c- that can stop God from converting people to being followers of his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of John is probably one of our greatest testimonies to that. Jesus himself, speaking throughout the book of John, reminds us that all that the Father gives him, he will lose none of them. None will be cast out. Every individual that the Father gives to the Son, he will not lose them, but he will raise them up on the last day. It's the Father that draws to the Son, not us. And there's no escaping this irresistible love and ability to convert. You can't escape this. This is why we preach Christ. And when the true shepherd speaks, the true sheep hear his voice. And they walk out of the world's grip. That's what happened to you. When the true shepherd called you, you walked out of the world. And you came to the shepherd. That's what he does. 
The true sheep hear his voice and they follow him. True sheep hear the voice of the Lord. And their love for this true shepherd is witnessed by the gathering of the flock and the desire to believe and obey God's word. See, if you feed a goat sheep food, they just choke on it. They don't want it. Sticks in their spiritual crawl. And they gag on the truth of God's word. But not true sheep. And this is why we keep preaching the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he loves to bring sheep to himself. He loves to gather. And that's because he foreknew his sheep. He predestined, he predetermined our future. Just as we studied in in, uh, Psalms 139. He predetermined us to be conformed, converted to the image of his son. Isn't that true? He has the power to show mercy where he wants to show mercy. He has the power to harden where he wants to harden. And all of this is done in his sinful, excuse me, his sinless perfection. He does that perfectly. He dispenses mercy and he hardens perfectly. And we trust him with that. And so the fornicator, the idolater, the adulteress, the effeminate, the homosexual, the thief, the covetous, the drunkard, the reviler, the swinder, they could never, we could never inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of us, the Bible says. Until he converted us. So redemptive history, brothers and sisters, is full of God converting people who have no deserving right to his grace and love. And this is why we keep boasting in him and not in ourselves and not in our church. We keep preaching a true gospel which is is only hope for mankind. You've got to do it lovingly. You've got to care for sinners. You can't beat them. You've got to teach them the love and the truth and love. We should do that. But we do it knowing that God converts. And we should not stop believing that Christ promised to build his church. He promised that the gates of hell, the gates of government, gates of legislation, all those appoint, oppose the word of God will not and cannot stand against his power and authority. He has authority to convert. He has authority to make you a child of God. And he's done that for so many of us. You want to wage war against God? You're going to lose. You're going to lose. Look with me at Psalms 2 briefly. For the sake of time, I would love to preach this, but let me just read just a little bit of out of it. It's a reminder as we see the gates of hell rattling at times that they will not prevail over us. Psalms 2 verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising vain things? Bill C4 in Canada. A division of vain things. It's exactly what it is. Why do they do this? Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, let us 
tear their fellows apart. Let us cast their cords from us. We don't want anything to do with God. We want to live our own life. We want to create our own definitions of love and marriage and when life begins and when it doesn't. Who dies and who lives? We want that. Tear those fetters from us. Cast them away. Don't put that restriction on us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> the Lord scoffs at them. Look at this. Then he will speak to them in his anger. God has constantly, lovingly put his loving care out to this world. For God so loved the world, his entire creation, he loves them. But there's a time coming when he will speak to them in his anger. And every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess and bow before him. And they will be terrified in his fury. But as for me, I've installed my king. (laughs) Oh, there's Jesus. He's going to rule. He's going to split mountains. He's going to perform perfect justice. He's going to fulfill the Father's plan perfectly. And you don't want to oppose him. Now or then. We have to die to the things that we still oppose God on. Every one of us have little areas in our life. We get exposed to them every once in a while. Maybe a dear friend will show you. Maybe you'll, you'll have this anger in you. You'll have issues in it. And that'll show you you're opposing God somewhere. We've got to deal with that. We're his children. We're on his side. He goes on to say, I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's a point where the father gives full rule, full everything to the son. And he has it right now at the right hand, but he's coming. He'll give, he'll ask, and he'll surely give the nations as your inheritance. Every knee, every nation, to the very ends of the earth will all be fully in the hands of God. And he will rule with an iron rod. And he'll shatter things like earthenware. Therefore now, O kings, show discernment. <laughs> My translation, don't be stupid. You think you can take God? We warn you, nations of the world, governments, legislations. Taking warning, O judge of the earth, worship the Lord in reverence. Bow your knee to him while you can. Rejoice in trembling. That's what we do. We, we rejoice with a fear, an awe of our God, don't we? We do homage to the Son because there is no way to the Father. And we don't want the Son to show his wrath on us. And by God's grace and through salvation, he hasn't. But perishing comes when the Son comes to judge. And his wrath will soon be kindled, brothers and sisters. Soon the Gracious Lord Jesus will come and he will rule and you will see his wrath. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. So brothers and sisters, no nation can ever stop or hinder God from accomplishing his purpose. Past, present, future, God's truth teaches us he reigns perfectly in his sovereignty. 
And brothers, we need to pray for God's sovereign rule over North America. We're going down hard (laughs) and quickly. Christians can repent and Christians can walk with God and we can seek His mercy. We can pray for our missionaries who are in worse situations than us. We can ask that God will use His Word to humble them and empower them. We can give and we can send and we can support church plants in these areas. And we can watch God bring fulfillment to His plans. But let's stand unashamed for Christ and His Word right here, right now, in the pulpit, in the pew, in the home, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our community, and in our nation. Let's stand unashamed for God's Word and that God can convert. Amen? Do you agree with this? Lord, we close this point out with a prayer as well. We pray that this congregation, a group of people, that claim our righteousness only because of your son's perfect work, that we would not be ashamed that our God converts, that our God has a plan for marriage and gender and life and death and all of those beautiful truths, Lord, and we would not be ashamed of those things, and we would stand for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My last point is I want to give you a bit of an introduction to 1 Corinthians and to remind us that there's a gospel witness in our most personal relationships. That's what I think 1 Corinthians is about. As you turn to 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to think about this just a little bit and let me challenge you. See, there's a temptation for the church to react strongly against godless legislation. And yet at the same time, live out unbiblical marriages and roles and distort the gospel through the most personal way we can live out the gospel. 1 Corinthians 7 is written to, I think in some sense, to blow the lid off our fleshly thinking about our relationships and put the emphasis back on correctly modeling a, a A group of people who are committed to the gospel as we're committed to one another in our relationships. So I don't want us to get comfortable pointing the finger at the lost world as I've gone through these other issues of sanctity of life and marriage and gender and all these things. Because we can't mishandle our relationships with one another. We can't say, oh, the world is doomed and they're... They hate God, and yet we distort the personal gospel testimony of Jesus Christ and His church within our own homes. This is important, isn't it? So in 1 Corinthians 7, we see Paul now beginning to address, some authors said they're questions, but I think they're more of statements that they have responded back to him. Notice in chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So we know there's a previous letter to to 1 Corinthians. He's written them a letter, and they're responding. And instead of asking questions, they seem to be making charges, making statements at the Apostle Paul in their pious, self-righteous way. Remember, they were caught up in human wisdom, and they thought they had things figured out, and now 
They not in reality begin to attack the Apostle Paul and they begin to distort the beautiful relationships of marriage and singleness because of their vain thinking. See, Paul had spent the first six chapters responding to Chloe's concerns. Remember, she had returned and said, oh, Paul, there's factions going on there. And then his own concerns with the struggling church. Chapter 1, he dealt with these factions. Oh, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. And they're all lining up after men and causing division. They were clinging to their human wisdom. And Paul says, Christ is the wisdom and power of God. He brings them back to the centrality of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, they think they've landed in their wisdom, and Paul brings them back to the Christocentric, spirit-empowered life. It's completely different than the natural man. The natural man's left to himself, but not the, not the follower of Christ. In chapter 3, he gives them farming illustrations of the unity of Paul and Paulus. Paul says, I planted, and Paulus watered, and Christ brings the, the harvest. He gives them a picture of a foundation of a spiritual building all built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you build on anything other than that, it's built in vain. They thought they were doing the work. Chapter 4, he reminds them of what true servants, an example of Christ, looks like as he defends his apostolic position. Chapter 5 he shows that they have no concern for immorality that's in the church. There's a man living with his mother-in-law and they've done nothing about it. There's no church discipline going on. They're not concerned about the glory of God. And now cancer like leaven is making its way through the bread. And he challenges them on that. Verse 6, there's strife and lawsuits with one another, unwilling to be wronged for the sake of the gospel. They're not willing to, even if they were right, they're not willing to be wronged. Pride was so evident within the church. And Paul finally ends that section. Notice in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or infeminate or homosexuals or thieves or covetous or drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. And then he winds the whole passage up, reminding us in verse 20 that we were bought with a price. We were to glorify God with our bodies. And then he takes on their statements. What a task that he's already done. First six chapters were just chocked full of, of biblical uh, truth to point out Air and false thinking in us. And the arrogance that had made its way into this church. But now Paul picks up their concerns. You'll notice in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, now concerning. Chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning. Chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning. And so forth. You see it out there. He's now taking on their letter. A letter that is charged with anger towards Paul, rejection of God's truth. We see it in here, the way he addresses these things. See, the, it doesn't seem that the church is seeking the counsel of their spiritual mentor. They want Paul to agree with them, 
To me, they loved wisdom and knowledge. They loved the great orators of the day. They wanted to be like them, not like Christ. So Paul's going to take up these manners, these, these matters that they have, these unbiblical views. In the first matters regarding marriage in chapter 7. And many of Paul's concerns were with marriage and singleness. They all stem from chapter 5 and chapter 6. This shows this was in there. And there seems to be a, a, a reaction to this. A self-righteous reaction to this that Paul has to address. There's two sections in chapter 7 that we'll look at. Each section starts with that now concerning. And even through the issues that are slightly different in the sections, the same theological motivation now comes out of Paul. He consistently says over and over in chapter 7 is, don't move from where you're at, stay as you are. Ten times he says that in this text. Stay as you are, do not abandon what God has given you. Marriage, singleness, your relationships, do not abandon these things. Verses 1 through 7, he says to the married, stay married with full conjugal rights to each other. It's going to be a challenging passage. This is right out of God's word. This is Paul penning the inspired word of God. Stay married with full conjugal rights to each other. 8 and 9, to the unmarried and widows, it's good for you to remain unmarried. 10 through 11, to the married with a believing partner, remain married. 11, excuse me, 12 through 16, to those with unbelieving spouses, remain married if possible. 25 through 38, to virgins, singles, remain unmarried till God changes your status. Wait on Him. 39 through 40, to the married women and widows, the married are bound to marriage, and to the widow, it's good for them to remain that way. He'll give evidence why that's there. Now the question has to be asked, what's driving all of this? Why does Paul have to deal with these? Well, this uprising of, of self-righteousness was coming. This is a group of people that saw themselves, some of them, I think there's a smaller group that's influently larger, that saw themselves as writhing spiritually. And so we've arrived spiritually. And if you all do what we do, and all that bad stuff we had to deal with in 5 and 6 is because you haven't arrived spiritually. And when you arrive spiritually, you don't need all this stuff. You don't need marriage. You don't, there's no marriage or given in marriage in heaven. And we've already arrived. I mean, there's literally people in this church telling women not to have intimacy with their husbands. Telling people to divorce Paul is going to straighten this out. You notice the first statement there in verse 1. He says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's not a question. That's their statement. Many people, Pastor Brian, she and I were talking about this week. Many people have missed the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 7 because they miss that Paul is quoting from them. He's not saying, oh, it's, not, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He's quoting them. And this causes all kinds of problems in marriage and singleness and divorce and all kinds of issues. And so this ascetic group in this Corinth church was insisting that the married, the married dissolve their marriage to abstain from any sexual relationship even within their marriage and putting pressure on engaged and widows to not marry. 
I mean, think about this. Paul's going to write Ephesians 5. And they wouldn't agree with any of that. That's how far this church had got away from the truth of God's word. And so we begin to see a strong influence. One of the things I'm going to develop is we think many theologians that I've read on this, and I believe this, is that the influence is actually coming from women within the church. Most of the problems in 5 and 6 really have a lot to do with the men. They're suing each other. They're involved in immoral things. There's effeminate boys with men uh, walking around together. There's homosexual activity. There's all kinds of things going on. A lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it seemed to stem to um, men who claimed to be followers of Christ but were living godless life. And, and there's always a reaction to that, right? There's always a reaction. Some people will react to that, and instead of humble and broken that God would save them in a, in a goal of bringing to the gospel to them, there's always this reaction of, well, oh, that's not us. In fact, we're just the opposite of that. And if you follow us, then you too will find this spiritual nirvana. And that's what's going on. And the reason I think this is several reasons. One, men generally don't say, hey, let's stop having sex. <laughs> Most cases, not all, men enjoy the intimacy with their wife. There's also a group of women that have come out of the oracles of Delphi, this godless pagan religion that was in Corinth that was really run by a female priest who engaged in terrible immoral stuff in the worship of total pagan gods. Some of them have gotten saved and made their way into the church and they're young and they're misinterpreting the roles of women within the church. They're misinterpreting roles within public worship. We'll find this in chapter 11. That's why he deals with head coverings and, and roles between men and women and the headship of Jesus Christ and, and male authority. He deals with those things. There's probably abuse. Galatians has been written by now. Galatians 3.28 says that all are equal in Christ and and, and so they maybe take him that and say, well, look, look, uh, there is no subordinating roles anymore. We're all equal in Christ. That's the statement of Christian feminists today. And they miss the opportunity that God takes all of our roles, man, husband, wife, children, all of us to bring great glory to God in those unique roles. There are not lesser roles, they're different. And so it seems to be that there's possibly this uprising of, of some women within this church that are pushing this legalism on this on this church, and it's flushing out in their marriages. And so we've got to investigate this. We've got to go verse by verse and tear this passage apart and get our minds around what God considers a biblical marriage and how we fix broken marriages and, and how we walk with God in our singleness and, and in our roles that God has given us to bring Him great glory. I promise you, brothers and sisters, this will challenge us. So come, be under the Word of God. It might be that, that we might have to repent of some things in our own lives. We might have to say, oh God, I, I failed you in this area. Come willing to say, God, I want my marriage, my singleness, my intimacy, everything about me to honor you. Come that way and see what God does with your heart. See how he helps grow you. He gives you joy, maybe even in difficult circumstances. And finally, brothers and sisters, don't let your experience trump the word of God. Experiences are powerful to us, aren't they? Every pastor's heard this over and over. Well, you don't understand what I've been through. 
Well, I, I may not, but I got this. This is what I got. It's perfect, sufficient, infallible. So this is where we're going. Amen? Let's turn to the table. Father, thank you for this time together in the Word. Would you help us, Lord, be a church that's dedicated to your truth, dedicated to the gospel in every area. Help us preach and teach the truth in love and yet be unashamed, Lord, even at great cost that may come our way someday. Help us, Lord. Lord, it can't be just pastors standing here. This has to be a body of Christ made up of every member, Lord, to help us stand in a way that honors you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.